Well, good morning. Where do you turn when you are faced with trouble? Maybe some of you would describe the, the season that you're in right now as a troubled season, a difficult season, a season that's filled with trials. Or perhaps someone very close to you, maybe someone sitting right next to you right now, is in trouble, trouble of one type or another. And you want to know, how can you comfort them? What encouragement can you give to them? Well, I hope you'll find that answer today in this sermon. We can face all kinds of different trouble in life. We can face uh, troubles of broken family relationships. We can face troubles of uh, difficult work situations. We can face fears about the future and what it holds for us, what we should do next. All kinds of troubles can face us in this life. Where do you turn when you're faced with trouble? Our passage today shows us where to turn in times of trouble. The passage is from Psalm 3, so if you haven't already turned there, please turn there now. It's on page 448 of the Pew Bibles. In Psalm 3, we find David in perhaps the most dire of circumstances, the most troublesome situation of his whole life. We get a clue of this situation from the superscription given at the beginning of the psalm. It gives us some context for when David wrote the psalm, and we heard a little bit of that context read earlier. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So unlike the other titles that are found in, in your passage, perhaps yours says, save me, O oh my God. I think the uh, ESV says that. That's a, a title that's been added by an editor uh, for our English translations. But these superscriptions are in the earliest manuscripts of Psalm 3, and they help us. In contrast to the triumphant tone that we see in Psalm 2, Psalm 3 paints a very different picture of David's life when he's at the lowest point, perhaps. Psalm 3 is a lament. That is, it's a, a moving and intensely personal expression of grief and sorrow, pain and anguish. But what exactly had happened? And so to understand Psalm 3 better, I'm going to refer to the story that's in 2 Samuel chapters 12 through 17. We heard a little bit of the story, but I'm going to recap the whole story for you so that you can understand Psalm 3 better. Following David's success, he had a terrible fall. David grew complacent, and we're told that when he should have been out at battle with the rest of the men of Israel, he remained in Jerusalem with all of the women and children. Instead of leading his army to conquer his enemies, he stayed back and fell into temptation. He took another man's wife. He got her pregnant. And then, in order to try and cover up his sin... He plotted and schemed for this husband to be murdered at the hands of his enemies, the very enemies that David should have been fighting. He took Bathsheba as his own wife, but God, God sent Nathan, the prophet, to confront David. And he said that this great sin in God's sight would lead to consequences. So God promised that because of his sin, David's life would never be the same. David's life 
would be filled with sorrow and anguish. In fact, God said, God promised that because of this sin, the sword would never depart from his house. He promised that the child that was in Bathsheba's womb would die. But God also graciously promised that David's sin would be forgiven and that David himself would not die. So just as God had promised, the sword arose in David's house. One of his sons commits a horrible act against his sister-in-law, or his stepsister, sorry. Amnon took Tamar, and so Absalom kills his brother. Already we see God fulfilling his promises of the sword rising in the house of David. And so Absalom flees from Jerusalem because he's murdered his brother. David eventually pardons Absalom, and he calls for him to return but he gives strict instructions that Absalom should never come into his presence again. Absalom can't see his father anymore. So Absalom returns to Jerusalem, and he never comes into his father's presence. For a long time, he has no relationship with David. Eventually, they, they meet, and there's some sort of signs of reconciliation, but their relationship remains broken. And Absalom takes the opportunity and conspires against his father, the king. Absalom turns the heart of the men of Israel against King David. At first, it's all in secret. He's conspiring against David, but slowly and surely, David, we're told, sorry, that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Over four years, this conspiracy develops, and eventually, Absalom makes his move. The conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. This conspiracy couldn't stay hidden forever, and news comes to David. The hearts of men have turned away from you, David. They've gone after Absalom. Absalom and his troop are coming to seize and kill David. So as we heard in our passage, David takes a few remaining loyal men, and he flees from Jerusalem. The very city that's named after him, the city of David, where God dwelt in the midst of his people. The anointed one of the Lord has been forced to flee Jerusalem, his home. Second Samuel tells us that as David left, he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered. David runs to hide across the Jordan in the wilderness. It's at this low point in David's life that inspired him to write Psalm 3. Please follow along as I read it aloud. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, How many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. 
I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Let's pray for a moment. O Lord, cause us to see marvelous things in Psalm 3 today. For those who are tempted to despair in the circumstances that they face, I pray that you would use this psalm to encourage them to have confidence in you. By the power of your Spirit, cause us to leave here transformed by your word. Help us to turn to God and to trust in him in troubled times, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. The main idea of my psalm is that. Turn to God in troubled times. Turn to God in troubled times. That's the main idea of this whole sermon. Everything else will just be explaining that. So we're going to look at three points that fit under this idea of turning to God in troubled times. Point number one, turn to God when trouble comes. Turn to God when trouble comes. For a moment, let's reflect on the trouble that David's facing. David stresses that in the opening of his psalm. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David faces overwhelming odds. He is outnumbered. He is outmatched. And so he has to run. He emphasizes the number of his foes and enemies. Did you see that? Many are my foes. Many are rising. Many are saying. We're told in 2 Samuel that the number of men that had turned to Absalom kept increasing. Absalom turned thousands of the men of Israel against King David. Comparatively, David had only a few hundred people that went out with him. Not only has David been dethroned, but in a moment he realizes that the whole nation has turned against him. David doesn't stand a chance against them. Can you relate to David in this circumstance? Are there times when a trial just seems overwhelming? The odds are too great, they are against you, and it just feels like too much. Maybe you're facing a situation right now where you feel totally overwhelmed and you can't possibly cope. Imagine how David felt, fleeing into the wilderness with thousands of men after him. What makes it worse is that unlike Psalm 2, where we see the nations raging against David and the people's plotting, this isn't the nations and, and peoples out there. This is David's own people. It gets even worse. At the center of this group of people that are against David is his one and his own, not his only son, but his son, his own son. Can you imagine the pain that you would feel with your own offspring turning against you so wickedly? How bitter must David's sorrow have been because this conspiracy was in his own people that he had served and led and loved and from within his own household. 
his son Absalom. Oftentimes, the most painful trials and troubles that we face are from the people closest to us, right? Not from random strangers, but the people that we thought we could depend upon. The people that we thought cared for us the most or loved us. I'm sure that you have faced those kinds of things in your life. Maybe even are facing those things. If all of that wasn't bad enough, what was perhaps the hardest thing to bear about this whole situation was knowing that this disaster had been brought upon him by God himself. Because of his sin. This is a consequence of David's sinfulness. David had taken another man's wife. He had shed her husband's innocent blood. And when the prophet Nathan confronted David, he said, For this reason, because of what you've done, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Those words God spoke to him must have rung in David's ears as this all happened. That may have even tipped him over the edge from despair into outright depression, overwhelming anguish. His enemies don't remain silent either. They add fuel to the fire of David's sorrow and pain and misery. They say, there is no salvation for you in God. David's enemies use one of the most violent weapons that we can use, our words against David. They say, God's forsaken him. He's a ruined man. Words can cause the deepest cuts to our soul, can't they? Here, David's foes are saying, God's deserted you, David. You're hopeless. You're beyond saving. They throw David's sin right back in his face. And 2 Samuel recounts one specific interaction with an enemy. While David is fleeing from Jerusalem, Shimei, a relative of Saul, threw stones at David and cursed him. He said, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. God has forsaken you. God has left you. He's abandoned you. There's no help in God for you. Charles Spurgeon, who experienced great depression and affliction himself, comments on this verse, and he says, If all of the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, if all of the crosses which arise from the earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. No doubt David felt undone. Perhaps you can relate to some of these troubles that David was facing. Have you felt that what you're facing is impossible to handle? Or that the odds are stacked against you and you simply don't stand a chance? Maybe you've been taken entirely by surprise like David was. And those that were closest to you have turned against you or betrayed you in some way. Or perhaps you did something sinful in your past, some sinful decision, 
you've acted in some wicked way, like David, and you still bear the painful consequences of those things today. Maybe just even the memory of that sin still hurts deeply. Does the enemy whisper in your ear that you are too far gone? God can't save you. Your sin is just too great. What should we do when we're in that sort of situation? What should we do when we are so close to despairing? When we're tempted to doubt God's care and love for us or willingness to save? In the midst of facing overwhelming odds, personal betrayal, having his kingdom ripped from his hands, his life threatened, his own son turned against him, and all as a consequence of his own sinfulness, what does David do? He cries out to God. Look at the beginning of the psalm. Who is David addressing with this pain and overwhelming sorrow? Oh, Lord. David's not simply complaining about his situation. He's turning to God. We see David do this all over the psalms. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. In our English translations, it's harder to see, but the word there, Lord, do you see that? It's all in capital letters. That's because it's actually the name of the Lord. In Hebrew, that is God's name. Yahweh. David uses this name six times throughout this psalm emphasizing his personal relationship with God who had made a covenant with him, who had made promises to him about his throne and about his kingdom and about his offspring. Yahweh is the personal name that God had revealed to Moses. Yahweh is God's covenant-keeping name. David's enemies in verse 2, they use the more general term God or title. But David calls on God by using his personal covenant-making name. God loves his people. He makes promises to them. He makes covenants with them, like David, and he always keeps his promises. I want to briefly point out two simple lessons that we can learn from David here. Number one, David turns to God in the midst of his troubles. So often, when we face trouble, it is easy to turn away from God, to doubt his goodness, especially when that trouble comes as a consequence of our own sinful deeds or actions. Imagine how much David would feel that temptation in this circumstance. But he doesn't. He doesn't turn away from God. He turns to God in the middle of the trouble that he's caused for himself. He doesn't turn away from God. He turns to God in the middle of his trouble. Brothers and sisters, turn to God when you face trouble. Don't neglect gathering with God's people and meeting with him in a unique way when God's people gather together. Fight the temptation to lean away from the Lord and stop praying and stop reading your Bible and lean in towards God when troubles come. It feels so difficult at times to do that, but it's the best thing for us. And David gives us an excellent example of that here in Psalm 3. Follow David's example. Turn to God in the midst of your troubles. 
The second lesson that we can learn is that truth is determined by God, not by popularity. David doesn't listen to the many voices that are telling him God won't save him. Our culture seems to think that truth gets determined by a vote. That the the largest number of people who agree, they determine what is true and what is right. Truth isn't determined by a vote, brothers and sisters. God speaks the truth. The truth is not determined by people, it's determined by God. If everyone else in the entire world tells you that God isn't real, and that God won't save you, or that your sin is just too great, it doesn't make it any more true. Don't listen to the prevailing wisdom of the times when it stands against God and his word. David combats these lies of the skeptics with the truth about God, the truth that God has revealed to him. And we will look at that a little bit further in our second point. Turn to God by remembering the truth. So how do we turn to God? We turn to God by remembering the truth. Verse 3 begins with the most glorious words that we can find in Scripture. But you, O Lord. David turns from his trouble to God. But you shows that David has turned his thoughts from his situation, as drastic as it is, to his God who is infinitely greater than any circumstances. David forces himself to reflect on who God is. What is God like? And he reflects on his attributes. Look with me for a moment at verse 3. What does David remember about God? What does he remember? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. David mentions three things about God. Firstly, God is a shield about David. God is a mighty shield all around him. And shields, as you know, are used in battle to provide protection against enemy assault. David remembers that the Lord is like a shield. God himself is his protector. Unlike a literal shield, which only provides a limited amount of protection, God is a shield that is all around him. God's protection is different than a regular shield. It has no limits. God is all around him. God surrounds him. God leaves no part of him unprotected. The enemy can't find a weakness or a hole or chink in his armor. David might have a blind side, but God doesn't. God has no blind side. God provides a secure refuge for David. His protection surrounds us entirely, above us, below us, all around. Nothing can happen to us except by God's permission. And God won't allow anything to happen to us that he will not carry us through when we trust and rely on him. We all need to remember this truth, especially when we face trials. That God is a great defender. He is our protector. Nothing can happen to us outside of God's control. What a protector God is for us. He wards off the fiery darts of Satan from below and the storms of trouble from above. And God even protects us from the temptations within. 
Paul writes to the Thessalonians, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. To the Corinthians, Paul writes that God's faithfulness will be with them in any temptation that they face. God won't allow them to be overcome, but will provide a way out so that they can endure that temptation. And to the Ephesians, which we read earlier in the service, Paul says this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's overwhelming. But he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the devil and having done all to stand firm. Going on, Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Brothers and sisters, God is our shield. God is our refuge. God will not let us be overcome. When we face trouble, we must turn to God by remembering this truth, trusting this truth, depending upon it. The second thing that David remembers about God is that God is his glory. David remembers his glory doesn't come from anything in himself, not what he's done, not his position as king over Israel. His, his circumstances have reminded him that everything can be stripped away in a moment. And they have. All as a consequence of his own sinfulness. Yet David remembers that God is his glory. His value and worth come from God. It's not dependent on him. He has no glory of his own. His value and worth come from God, and he remembers that. This is not only true of David, this is true of all of us. We too have no glory of our own. If anyone could claim glory for themselves, it would be King David, the man after God's own heart, the king, God's anointed one. But he doesn't. David knows that he has no glory of his own. His throne has been stripped away, his friends have deserted him, and he's suffering because of his own awful sin. Yet he remembers that his worth is not wrapped up in himself, but in the Lord his God who has chosen him. How much of your self-worth, your value, comes from who you are? What you've accomplished, your position. David here reminds us that God is our honor. God is our glory. We must remember that, especially when we face troubled times. Our temptation when faced with trouble, especially when that trouble comes as a consequence of our own sinfulness and foolishness, is to reflect solely on ourselves, to look at ourselves, to look downwards and inwards, to consider ourselves worthless. I'm worthless, and to fall into self-pity. But we must remember, like David, that our worth and dignity and glory come from God. No matter what we've done, no matter what circumstances we face, 
Our glory comes from God as those that are created in His image. Our glory comes from God. And we look forward to a greater glory when we'll be transformed when Jesus returns and what we will be will be revealed and He takes us home. We must pray for grace to see our current glory and our future glory in the midst of current trials, troubles, and shame. Thirdly and finally, the thing that David remembers about God is that God is the lifter of his head. In contrast to the dejected image of someone whose head has fallen, they've given up all hope, God lifts David's head. He turns from gloom and dejection to remembering the truth about God, and God lifts David's head up. His reflection on who God is, that God is his shield and will provide protection, that God is his glory and his worth, results in David's confidence growing. And so his head rises up. He has confidence even in the midst of his trouble. And his confidence, in it, he cries aloud to the Lord. And David says that the Lord answered him from his holy hill. Even though David has been driven from that holy hill in Jerusalem, he cries to God. He's been driven from the dwelling place of God, but he cries aloud to the Lord who he knows, and he turns to God for hope. He turns to God for security, and he turns to God by remembering the truth. But how did God answer David's cry? For help. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. First, notice what God didn't do. There wasn't an audible voice from heaven, though God could have done that. David's enemies didn't just disappear, vanish, though God could have done that too. God didn't undo the whole situation. In fact, the trouble didn't go away at all. So what did God do? How did God answer David? I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. God gave David faith. God sustained him while he slept, and God gave him peace, peace enough to fall asleep. David wasn't able to trust his life to himself. He was enabled to trust his life into God's hands. He doesn't plan. He doesn't strategize. He turns to God, and he remembers the truth. He cries aloud, and God gives him greater faith. We can learn some important lessons here as well. Just two that I'd like to mention. Number one, God doesn't always deliver us from trials and troubles immediately. But he will give us grace to face them with faith. David says in verse 6 that his enemies are still there. Many thousands have set themselves against him all around. He's literally run away and is hiding in the wilderness and could easily be ambushed at any moment. Absalom has thousands of men at his disposal, and Ahithophel, his counselor, who had betrayed David, encourages him 
to send him with these men. He says, let me choose 12,000 men. I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged, and I'll throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, only David. If, the, if Absalom had taken this counsel, he wouldn't have found David in a panic. He would have found David asleep, resting in faith. But he didn't. David's situation didn't change, but David's heart did. Turning to God and recounting the truth about God gave David courage, and it set him free from fear. God doesn't always deliver us out of our trials and troubles immediately, but he gives us grace to face them in faith. The second lesson that we can learn is that remembering the truth about God helps build our faith. We see that in the fact that he lies down to sleep. How often do the troubles in your life keep you from sleep? Or they cause your sleep to be fitful? That happens to me often. Some trial or trouble comes upon me, anxieties creep in, and they steal away sleep. Because I'm not sleeping, that makes me feel even worse. I feel even more concerned, and my anxieties start to grow, and fear begins to grip. And finally, I'm faced with despair. Don't do that. David turns to God in the midst of his troubles. He reminds himself of the truth about God, his protection, his worth, and the comfort that God can give. And then he goes to bed. He falls asleep. Sleep is oftentimes one of the most spiritual things that you can do. Sleep shows that you are trusting in God, not in yourself. Sleep shows that you need to take rest, that you are not all-powerful, that you can't accomplish everything. God never grows tired. God never grows weary. He never sleeps. But you and I, we're not God. Sleep reminds us every single day that we're not God. We have this reminder when we lay down to sleep that we are not God, but that we are entrusted into his care. David remembers the truth. He cries aloud to the Lord, and God answers by giving him rest, giving him sleep. Brothers and sisters, does that describe you when you face troubles? Do you recount the truth about God to yourself or to others around you who are suffering trial or trouble? Do you fight for faith by recalling God's character, his power, his protection, and his love towards his people? You must combat trials by remembering the truth about God, and it builds faith. And that leads us to our third and final point, because prayer builds our faith as well. So point number three, turn to God in urgent prayer. David turns to God not only by remembering the truth, but in urgent prayer as well. Notice the whole psalm itself is a prayer. David addresses God in verse 1. He says that he cried aloud to God in verse 4. 
And then he calls on the Lord to save him in verses 7 and following. We don't just turn to God by remembering the biblical truths about him, though that's really important. But those truths, when they're rightly believed, when they're rightly understood, when we trust in them, always leads to prayerfulness. Imagine for a moment if you were in a battle and you were in the trenches and you're surrounded all around by enemies and you knew that you had reinforcements that you could call upon at any moment. All you had to do was pick up the radio, call the general, and he would send in the troops. And the, there was no question the battle would be won. You would win. Those enemies would be overcome. But you just never picked up the radio. You never made that call. There would be something really, really wrong with you. Either you don't really think the radio works, or perhaps you don't really trust the general to actually send the troops, or maybe you think, ah, I can fight my way out of this one. It's not that bad. I can probably handle it myself. That's what it's like when we as Christians who say we have a relationship with God are prayerless. There's no greater weapon in the fight of faith than prayer. There are no greater reinforcements to call upon than the Lord God Almighty himself. David knows that, and so he cries aloud to the Lord, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. David's enemies are rising against him, surrounding him. But David calls on the Lord to arise to his defense. I wonder when was the last time you cried aloud to the Lord when you were faced with a trial, some trouble, when you lifted up your voice and cried aloud like David does here. Oftentimes, plans come before prayers. We think, I can't waste time. I must do something. I need to take action. Well, brothers and sisters, that is just a sneaky form of unbelief in our hearts. Prayer is doing something. Prayer is never a waste of our time. And prayer is the greatest action that we can take to call upon the Lord God Almighty himself. Don't get me wrong. It's not like David sat in Jerusalem and did absolutely nothing. He fled, but he was mindful of the Lord God the whole way. He turned to God for hope, and he cried out to the Lord as he fled. And the Lord heard him. So, brothers and sisters, when you are faced with troubles, do you turn to God in urgent and earnest prayer? Or are you tempted to start trying to solve the problem yourself? And then maybe go to God in prayer later. That might even work sometimes, but that kind of action reveals a heart that's trusting more in yourself than in God. And like David, we will all face troubles that are simply too big for us to handle. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul from Philippians 4. He says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what David did. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord gave him peace that is beyond understanding. Don't live in fear and anxiety. Turn to God in urgent prayer like David did, and God will give you peace. He'll give you grace to sustain you. David knew that his life was in God's hands. He knew it was the Lord who had sustained him while he slept. If he was going to have any victory, it would only be because God delivered him. God would strike his enemies on the cheek. God would break the teeth of the wicked, he says. David knows that God is the one who will humble his enemies by striking them on the cheek. God is the one who will break the teeth of the wicked because this image here of breaking their teeth is a vivid picture of rendering his enemies powerless. Like a snake without any teeth, no fangs, or a toothless bite. He also remembers that God is the one who vengeance belongs to. Vengeance is the Lord's. God will repay. David remembers God's victories in the past, and that gives him hope for the future as well. He knew that only God could save him from the consequences that his sins have brought upon him. His deliverance was in the hands of the Lord and the Lord alone. And so he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. David doesn't say, salvation belongs to you and me, God. We'll work together for my deliverance. He says, salvation from beginning to end belongs to God and to him alone. Salvation, he says, is God's blessing. And that God's salvation of David will mean blessing for his people. Salvation is God's blessing not only to David, but to God's people, all of them. So what did David do? He turns to God in urgent prayer, entrusting himself to God's grace. David doesn't deserve any salvation. It's his fault he's in the situation that he is in to begin with. And so what gives David this confidence? What could lead David to have confidence that God will even listen to his prayer? He remembers that God is gracious. God is merciful and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He remembers what God had said to him through the prophet Nathan. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. David can have confidence and assurance because God is always faithful. He always keeps his word. He always is faithful, even when we aren't. Salvation belongs to the Lord. David can have confidence because God promised him salvation. How much more can we have confidence because we know the greater David, who would come, one from, uh, from David's own kingly line? He was not a son like Absalom, though. He was a faithful son. Jesus Christ, the son of David and God's own son. 
God sent his son Jesus to bring the ultimate salvation that these ones pointed to. Jesus would bring the ultimate deliverance from our greatest trouble. Not mere physical troubles, but the greatest trouble that we all face, everyone faces, their sin against a holy God. Jesus was betrayed and deserted by all of those who were closest to him. He came to his own, and his own people rejected him, like they rejected David. He was surrounded by enemies, crying out, crucify him, crucify him. They were after his death. He was driven out of Jerusalem, not like David into the wilderness, but to the cross of Calvary. Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and there, like David, he faced great sorrow and distress. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save, and he was heard. He suffered and died, not as a consequence of his own sins, but the, for the sins of others. God sent his son Jesus to deliver us from the greatest consequence of our sin, God's own righteous judgment and wrath. Jesus rose again from the grave to show victory over our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And what a great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. God offers this salvation to all who, like David, turn to him in faith, trusting in his promises, believing in the truths that he's revealed about himself, and those who cry out to him in faith. We do not contribute anything to our salvation. We simply turn to God in our sin, in the mess that we've caused for ourselves, and we cry like David did, save me, oh my God. God hears, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are here this morning, and you have not done that, that is the most important thing for you to hear today. God saves sinners from their sin and the judgment that it deserves. If you have not turned to God, you can do that even now, today, right where you sit. Talk to one of the pastors here at the church or whoever brought you with them about what it means to turn to God in salvation from sin. Brothers and sisters, what should we do when troubles come upon us then? When we've been betrayed by a close one or overwhelmed by broken family relationships, where should we turn with our sorrows and doubts? To whom shall we run with all of our sin and its consequences? To the Lord. Turn to God in troubled times. Turn to him in the midst of your troubles by remembering the truth that he's revealed to us in his word, that he's your shield, that he's your glory, that he lifts up our heads and cry out to him in urgent prayer. He hears your cries, and he will answer you. He'll answer you either by delivering you out of that trouble immediately, 
or by giving you the grace and faith that you need to enjoy them. Let's turn to God now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise and glorify your name and we thank you. We thank you that you have given us an invitation to turn to you in troubled times. Lord, that you have provided the remedy for our, from our greatest trouble, our own sinful rebellion against you, that you provided your son, the greater David, your own son who came and walked upon the earth and lived a perfectly righteous life in our place and died the death that we deserve because of our sinful rebellion against you and that he rose from the dead, proving victory. The price had been paid in full. Our sins have been paid for in full and we have been reconciled to you. Lord, we pray, we pray that you would give us grace and lead us to turn to you in troubled times. Lord, I pray for them, those, of, those that are here today that don't know you, that they would turn to you today in faith and repentance. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified uh, in us depending upon you when we face troubles and trials. Lord, we thank you for all of these things in the name of your wonderful son, Jesus. Amen.